Welcome to episode 60 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we discuss the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Wellness Real Estate. And in this episode, I'm in Australia talking to Susie Barnett, CEO of JungleFi, a full-service living infrastructure specialist focused on bringing more plants into our cities. The company began life as a landscaping business and evolved over the last 13 years or so into one of what I class as the world's leading green wall, green roof and urban greenery businesses. Susie and I discussed the all-important why behind integrating this type of greenery into a building or public space, their involvement in scientific research studies, quantifying return on investment for indoor breathing walls, there we look at things like productivity, feelings of well-being and improvements in air quality in particular. We discuss why it's so important to consider upfront not just the initial investment costs on a living wall system and its irrigation and lighting, but also its ongoing maintenance. We look at their ideas for sharing outdoor living facade maintenance costs with local councils in reflection of the community benefits they bring and the outputs of their tech-friendly product development process in collaboration with the University of Technology, Sydney. Susie is on the board of the Living Future Institute of Australia. She's chair of the Biophilic Design Initiative and was pivotal in establishing the Green Building Council of Australia. She's an industry powerhouse, in other words, and this conversation didn't disappoint. So without further ado, here she is, Susie Barnett from JungleFi. Susie, lovely to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here, Matt. Could you start by giving us a quick intro to, to Jungle Fire as a business? And perhaps I'd be particularly interested in understanding about if its products and services have evolved over the years or if really it set out with a, with a task and knew what it was doing from day one or if it's been more of a uh, sort of a testing the market as you've gone. Yeah, absolutely. So JungleFi, um, we're all about, well, our main purpose is to cultivate that that critical connection between people, places, and plants. And we are a full-service organisation, so we grow the plants, we consult with, uh, you know, early, very early on in the design process of the built environment to make sure we can give them our, you know, the latest information on how these um, these products should be installed and also maintained and then we do the installation and the maintenance and so and it and it keeps going around our systems are a modular and so that gives our clients an opportunity to keep I guess have a much longer life um, for the plants um, than other systems has it always been that way no we started out life 13 years ago as a um, a landscaping business, um, but we had a lot of people asking for these things called green walls. And what happened was the owners um, decided to start a sister business um, called JungleFi. They named it JungleFi. And they had both businesses running at the same time the landscaping business and the green wall business. And the green wall business was. I think the thing that excited them the most and they saw the future um, in the market and they decided to close down the landscaping business and purely focus on green walls, which has evolved a lot over the last 13 years. So it's evolved to, to look at roofs, 
um, and facades and different types of products fit for purpose depending on the opportunity and what the clients are looking for. And where it's evolving now is at the beginning, Jungle Fire was very much involved in the latter stages of the project. So we would get involved once the design had been done, um, it had already been contracted out to a builder, and then they go, oh, it's landscaping. Oh, who can just do this? So it was very, very hard at that time to get the best outcomes in those early days because you're at the very end of the process. Today, it's very different. We get involved at the very beginning of the process before they've even conceptualised what they want. And um, clients come to us and say, what's possible? What can we do? And what's even more encouraging over the last couple of years is they're also thinking longer term. How can we design this for the longer term as opposed to that aesthetic? It's going to look good on day one and then after year one, year two, year three, you know, it starts to... Um, to to degrade, whereas we design it to look good at year one, year five, year 10, you know, um, well into perpetuity. And I think that's probably the biggest evolution of of what we do. And when you you try to understand the key drivers then behind your clients' decisions to to start working with you or to sort of come up with the initial concept, well, we need to bring some of the outside world in with some greenery, with some indoor mm-hmm. landscaping, possibly a green wall. They contact you. Do you sense that it is about delivering some kind of a tangible ROI? Do they come with numbers that they're trying to hit? Is it about expressing company values and beliefs or is it is it just an aesthetic decision that they make? It, it's it's a combination of all of those things. What what um, and, and again, this has evolved a lot in recent years. So originally, and still to some degree, some people are very much driven by just the aesthetic of plants. They look amazing, people love them, but they don't really understand the deeper purpose of plants and why people love them. And I think that's what's starting to be understood in the market. Um, so plants look good, but they have a very strong purpose in that they connect people to that place and they connect us with nature, which is fundamentally one of the most critical things we can have in our built environments because they have been designed really for, I, I call it for domination. You know, they're engineered and they're designed in a way for us as humans to dominate nature. And what we're now seeing is, an opportunity to rethink that and look at how we can design and build with nature at the forefront so it's inclusive. Um, to, are, they still, are they still being driven by a return on investment? Absolutely. Um, but what we're seeing is a very strong return on investment for those who do include plants in the right way uh, for fit for purpose and for longevity. So we... Um, So much so that we actually, a couple of years ago, we actually commissioned an organisation called the Centre for International Economics. They are people who take data and convert it into dollar terms. And this is something that um, normally only governments ask for because they're paying, they're spending taxpayers' dollars. So they use organisations like the Centre for International Economics to tell them if we spent, you know, $5 billion on this infrastructure project, are we going to get a good return on that? 
So we asked them, what would that look like using our scientific data for our return on investment um, for a particular um, product that we have called our breathing technology, which is an activated green wall, essentially, Matt. Um, and they told us that the return on investment, if you installed a breathing wall inside, would be $3. If you spent $1, you would get $3.44 in return because of the productivity gains and the response that people have to having plants and nature inside because they're very active at cleaning the air, removing nasty pollutants such as CO2, particulate matter, VOCs, um, and because of that biophilic response that we have with nature. If you put a breathing wall externally, um, the CAE report told us that you'd get um, $1.95 in return. And these are big numbers. These are return on investment numbers that we know the market needs because what we're doing is still challenging the industry. It's still considered quite niche and quite new, even though we've been doing it for 13 years and other companies around the world. But property and the property sector is very much a, a, a very price-driven sector. And we have to convert that feel-good notion of plants making people happy into real dollar terms. And I think that's that's where we're at now and we're starting to see that driving decision-making now beyond just it being an aesthetic. Um, we're finding the scientific research we do is driving that as well. So, so developers and owners want to be able to provide a strong business case to get the funding or to convince, you know, the, the COO um, in tight economic times. It all comes down to dollars. So the combination of scientific research and economics is, is definitely driving decisions now. I'm a big fan of, of anyone who's making a contribution on the research side. I think it's so important. And there is more and more data out there, but there's almost seemingly never enough. So it's always a good idea. If one can squeeze it into a project somehow, then exactly. go for exactly. it. It's, very, it's quite frustrating because the science on plants and our relationship to them is is probably the largest global body of evidence you'll see on, on anything, and yet people still question its its value. Um, and so it is frustrating, but, you know, it's starting, it's starting to resonate. I feel, I feel optimistic that this information is starting to hit the market and the early adopters are certainly using it to their advantage. I know one of the comments that I often hear or one of the questions from a client will be, okay, great, it's going to cost X to, to get this set up, let's call it sort of the capex, the upfront investment in installing a wall indoors or out. Uh, and then quickly it's followed up by, so, and what about ongoing costs? What have we got to factor yeah. in in terms of maintenance? So then really that flips into sort of OPEX, uh, sort of like an operating overhead related to maintaining it because you want it to look good. You want it to, you know, you don't really want dead plants on the wall. It kind of needs to look fresh. So from your experience now, when would a living wall be a sensible choice and in what circumstances could it perhaps be avoided or replaced with an alternative? There must be some instances where you just have to be honest with the client and say, okay, look, this is going to be a challenging space, whereas and then presumably there are others where it's just it's a, it's a gift, right? There are some walls or spaces in terms of light where it's, it's an obvious win and there must be some where you just go, okay, this is, a, this is maybe too tough. It would be interesting to hear a bit of both, right? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And it's, you know, for us, um, 
it's as much as what you say no to is what you say yes to. Because for us as a business, every single plant we install is our brochure in the future. And even and it's not just ours, it's a whole industry because we're leaders in the industry. So if you every failure of a green wall is someone's reason not to do it in the future. So and I think this, you know, the, the OPEX CAPEX is definitely a barrier for adoption because you've got different decision makers and different budgets and what a developer will want to do um, and then contract um, us and a, and a builder to actually put in, they're not necessarily paying for the maintenance in the future. Um, so whatever decisions they make, if they make poor decisions on lighting, if they underinvest in lighting, if they don't invest in the right fit for purpose living wall system, um, then they're not the ones paying for it down the track. It's going to be the the, the future owner, facility manager, tenant, strata, you name it. So that is certainly one of the biggest challenges. The way we've certainly said no to projects when they have um, not wanted to invest in the correct lighting system or irrigation system. We don't tend to put, I mean, they're, they're basic needs for us. If if they don't want to do light, the right lighting or any lighting or irrigation um, we tend to say no because we're also the company that's maintaining it, um, and our head of maintenance um, is 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 someone who they don't. We don't want to create more problems in the future. We only want to create a really good solution. The way around that is, you know, really comes down to education and making sure that those who are making those early decisions are aware that they're making decisions on behalf of others in the future, and they need to make the right decisions. And I think for a company like Jungle Fire, because we have done this so many times and we have so much experience, we are in a position to walk away if we don't feel like they make the right decision. It's fascinating how many people, how many of those companies come back <laughs> when they realise, you know, this is what we really want and we appreciate. They want that kind of advice. So I think in the future or for anyone out there thinking about this, the advice I would give is do not, think that this is a set and forget kind of decision. You can't say, yes, I want plants and I want them to look pretty on day one. You must be thinking longer term because this is the benefits of the plants are, are totally outweigh any of the, the costs. As I just said, you know, that's one example. The Centre for International Economics has already told us that for, you know, one of our product lines. I think clients need to think, so they need to think long term. They need to understand what is going to make this particular installation successful in the future. And it's, it's no different to making other decisions in your building for future maintenance. You know, you're, they're always thinking about how, may, how much will it cost to maintain this building in the future. I think the difference with the plants is there is a perceived, um, there is a perceived higher cost. And I've seen this before in the industry, um, I spent over a decade working with the Green Building Council of Australia and they facilitate and manage the environmental rating system Green Star, which is equivalent to LEED or BRIAM um, globally. And Green Star was, had a perceived cost. We can't do it, it's going to cost too much. And we're seeing the same now for, the, um, for, for looking at any kind of living infrastructure or nature-based solution. And I think what's going to happen is we just need to keep educating the market and make them see that 
the cost is actually an investment. And what you get from that investment is more benefit than financial investment. And clients must think about, definitely you've mentioned them, lighting, accessibility, how, can, how will it be accessed in the future? If it's in a really hard to access place so you can't get to it on a, um, an EWP, a ladder, a ropes um, access, then the plants will eventually fail because they do need to be looked after just like us. Um, so access and future maintenance is really important. Um, plant selection is absolutely critical. It's all, again, it's all about the light. And it's all about what types of plants will survive on a inside, um, on a north facade, on an east facade, on a west facade. You know, plants are pretty predictable, actually, when it comes to which plants can survive in those environments. And they have to see that regular maintenance is actually an investment that saves money over time. Um, the analogy I use, Matt, is no one buys a car thinking that, the day they hand over the money and buy that, they never have to do anything to that car ever again. In fact, they know that they will have to get it serviced regularly. And if they do, they will get a lot more out of the life of that vehicle than if they did nothing and just drove it into the ground. Um, our products are exactly the same, except that the plants are living and they can be replaced quite easily. Um, but they, it's not a set and forget type opportunity. So we have to think outside the box there. Yeah, that we're starting to talk to people about is this idea of sharing the investment in maintenance, um, particularly for exterior applications. So when you think about it, a lot of our local councils, um, you know, they plant the trees in our streets, they maintain them, they look after them, and they do it for the benefit of the community because we know the trees are... Um, they're creating biodiversity habitats, they're cooling temperatures down, um, they're cleaning the air to some degree, you know, they and they look amazing. Uh, a leafy street is what adds value to any property. We know that. So what, I, what we're finding um, fascinating in our conversations of late is why aren't living facades considered the same way? Because they are also giving an enormous benefit to the community, not just to the users of that particular building. But at the moment, the maintenance costs are uh, upon the, the owners of the building. Not, and there's no shared, there's no shared investment there. And I see a future where potentially there may be a contribution by local councils or other government departments because the benefit of those plants on, on facades, whether it's a, a green wall, a breathing wall, a green facade, is community-wide, not just to the benefit of the users of that building. So a, effectively a public-private partnership for the ongoing costs. Exactly, exactly. Makes sense. So it's interesting because you've got concept design, plant selection, installation, ongoing maintenance. But there's also this piece at the front end around the technical components, so the actual sort of engineering of the product itself. Not every company out there does this, and I find it to be one of your sort of USPs in a way that you have gone down the path of, of developing and trying to create your own innovations in this space over, over recent years. 
all, all around the idea of sort of unlocking the power of, of nature in the built environment, right? But, you know, I, there's the breathing wall that you mentioned. I, I saw on your website something called the X-Frame. Give us a give us a quick overview yes. of, of some of these components that are effectively your your IP, right? They, you develop yeah, them and then you, you use them yourselves. Hundred percent. So we have taken our knowledge, our thirteen years of experience, and we've invested a lot in in research and development around products and our research partnerships with um, plant scientists at the University of Technology Sydney has also helped us to evolve our products from a very much a scientific and an engineering perspective. So um, unlike other living wall applications, we're not just putting plants in a pot and whacking it on a wall and hoping for the best. We've actually delved deep into um, the science and the engineering behind how that plant will survive long-term. So the first innovation that we came up with was our, our module itself. Um, it's a, um, a square module um, we, we purpose grow the plants into that module so that when they're installed on site, they're already grown in and established and will last longer. They don't go into shock um, because they're already established. Um, and the X-Frame is our system of installing that on site. So you literally, we, I actually love seeing the X-Frames once they're installed. They look like a beautiful piece of industrial design. Um, and then we wait. So we do that on the project. And then whilst the building is, is undergoing other forms of construction, the plants are always the things, Matt, that go in last because once the plants are there, they need looking after. So we do all of our work up to a point which allows us to install it in the schedule and timeframe of that construction project. And then we wait until the project sort of at the very last days, which is usually the highest stress point, but... Then the plants come in and what's always amazing to me is once the plants are in, people on that site just stop and go, wow, how amazing is that? Whereas up to that point, they're a little bit like, what are you doing? What is this all about? And it's not till they see the plants that they realise um, how impactful it is. And, it, and it's literally a matter of a day. The plants are not there and then they're there because of our engineering um, with the module and the X-frame. Um, we're also able to apply that into much larger infrastructure examples. So our latest innovation is we've taken our standard module and X-frame and we've put multiple, um, sometimes eight, sometimes ten, on what we call a mega module. And it's going, at the moment we're installing our mega modules on on quite a controversial project in Sydney, their ventilation shafts as part of an underground tunnelling project called the West Connects. But this is a piece of functional infrastructure that sadly we need in our cities at the moment because we are still driving around in cars. And what um, the government decided to do was actually cover those ventilation shafts with, with plants. And we came up with our mega module um, concept, which means they literally get craned on, already planted, already installed, and they're there within minutes after they've been craned and installed onto these very, very high ventilation shafts. And now they're there creating an amazing um, opportunity for biodiversity to establish themselves and, and connect the ventilation shafts with the parklands that are surrounding it. So that's another innovation. So the application of our modules, because they're modular, they can, they can be in very, very small applications 
or very, very large. Um, we've also come up with a way to rotate them for easy maintenance purposes. So um, that means, you know, we've put rotating um, um, walls on car parks and on the side of very busy motorways so that when you maintain them, you literally flip them so they're facing the opposite side so it's very, very safe to maintain and easy. Um, and, of course, you mentioned, and I've mentioned earlier, our breathing technology, which is an activated um, living wall system. So we have our standard jungle firewall then we have our breathing wall. And the breathing wall is what we've, I would say, we've invested most of our um, research into with the scientists that at, at University of Technology Sydney. The results of our breathing wall have astounded um, them. And, and I have to say a little bit the industry, sometimes they think we're making it up <laughs> because it does sound too good to be true. But honestly, every piece of research we've done on this particular product has been peer-reviewed. There are so many pieces of research on this that the scientists at UTS were actually um, peer-reviewed as having the largest global body of research on green walls in the world. So it is very, very much backed by scientific research. And our breathing wall is literally a system where we have created um, what we call a plenum, which is an air cavity behind the wall. We've introduced small fans. They're not very big. They don't use a lot of energy. They're literally the size of a computer fan or something you'd see a big, about as big as your palm. And the, what the fans do is they are able to draw polluted air into the air cavity or the plenum behind the breathing wall. And the air has nowhere to go but through the root systems of the plants, through the back of our breathing module, through directly into the root systems. And it's the plant's root systems that actually remove the nasty pollutants that are circulating in our air. As I mentioned before, it's particulate matter, carbon dioxide, and volatile organic compounds. And the breathing wall has been proven scientifically to remove those pollutants faster than any other type of plant system on the market today. Um, and there's a lot of other benefits as well. It, it reduces um, temperature. It improves, um, improves the, obviously, with the pollutants being removed. It pushes out higher volumes of clean air, which means you're getting a lot better air quality. Um, if it's um, applied internally, that's really what's driving that $3.44 return because you're getting basically a, a biofilter working as hard, if not harder, than the HVAC system. I think it's where the industry needs to go. Uh, I think integrating this extra component of tech to sort of you know, 2x or 3x the impact of these walls is absolutely the way to answer the doubters and to yes. just take it to the next level. And you know, rather than just relying on uh, six, seven, eight plants per person in a room, which used to, to, tends to be the sort of figures that you get yeah. Um, pumped out of data and research, but just saying, well, actually, we can, with a little bit of tech included, we can then really take it much further. Than yeah, that. and it's it's low tech. It's not high tech. It's it's low tech, and definitely this this and with the pot plants, it's interesting you mentioned that because we actually have produced a version of our breathing tech, which we call our breathing stand, and it literally is to replace the volume of pot plants you would need to do the same 
thing. So our breathing stand um, uses about 140 plants or thereabouts. It has its own lighting. It has its own water reservoir and irrigation. And the combination of those create an opportunity to to produce cleaner volumes of air in an indoor environment than you would literally need hundreds of pot plants that are taking up valuable real estate, you know, on your on your floor plate. So that's our next innovation, Matt. That's um, we're testing it in the market at the moment. We've got some early prototypes out, and we're already going into version two of that product. So it's performing quite well at the moment. It is often the problem. It's exactly that. You know, it's it's the quantity of plants required to have a tangible impact on the indoor air quality versus taking up floor space. You know, floor space is usually just at such a premium. And then I'm kind of thinking, well, I can I can move them up, hang them from the ceiling, touch them to the walls, but you need to keep the floor free. And there, obviously, I'm immediately thinking about indoor spaces. But one of the things that caught my eye on your site was this Manly Vale car park case study. And you mentioned a, a car park as well. It's not typically where one would go looking for examples of biophilic design. But... There's a hook on the story there, isn't there? I think there's, it sounds like there was, there was perhaps a, 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 some kind of uh, a hurdle getting the project over the line with the local community and then effectively the green wall saved the day. Yes, absolutely. So the original design of the Manivar car park was typical of any car park. It was a facade covered in, um, you know, steel. It was quite artistic, you know, it looked quite pretty. But the community 100% said, no, not in my backyard. I do not want this car park. And so the government had a, a tricky situation on their hands. And fortunately, somebody introduced them to, to us at Jungle Fire and we introduced our breathing technology. And that's how we innovated actually the rotating breathing wall because it's a car park and it's a government project and they wanted the safety of maintaining it from the inside. So what we did is we covered that car park entirely in our breathing technology. We basically created a biofilter for a car park, which is unheard of, really. Usually car parks are the ugliest but highly functional, right, asset that you have in our cities. We've now created a car park that most people don't even realise it's a car park when they drive past. They think it's some fancy bar or retail uh, facility because it looks so beautiful. And the community, when we we repitched the design with it covered in plants, they went. It went from absolutely not to oh yeah, that's great. We would love that. Um, to the point where the local member of parliament called us into his office at Parliament House and said, "What did you do? Why why does the community want this so badly?" And we had to then explain, you know, why people love nature and plants, and that looking down on a car park covered in plants actually makes them feel good as opposed to looking at something that's concrete and steel and full of cars. So we were able to transform a very functional and required asset to something that the community wanted. And, you know, we're, we're hearing similar feedback on the, the ventilation shafts as well, like these, these assets that we have in our cities that can now perform multiple purposes. And I think this is what we have to do. We have to look at every asset, every built environment surface as an opportunity for urban greening and do it in a way that that doesn't just look pretty, it has to perform as well and actually give back more than what it what it takes. I love it. I think I think the idea of you know the moss wool behind the reception desk, uh, I think those days are, are probably gone and we all need to 
push things a little further. And, and I know one of the, the, the initiatives that you're supporting at the moment, I think that was actually how I came across you guys initially. It was around this National Biophilic Design Awards and the Living Future Institute, which is one of the guys that I studied with a few years ago. It was a great course. Oh, and who hasn't done it, I recommend that course as an online e-learning oh, opportunity. It's awesome. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah. Talk to us about that, that the awards relationship and, and what you're up to there. Uh, look, this is really exciting because, look, the International Living Future Institute has had uh, biophilic design awards for some time and they have been global. But what we noticed is that there wasn't a lot of representation from Australian um, projects. And so um, the Living Future Institute of Australia, of which I was a board member for the last six years and also worked on their biophilic design committee, I actually chaired the committee for some time, um, we came up with the idea of, of localising that those design awards to really start to build, I think, and inspire people around biophilic design. Um, Australia is one of those amazing markets that when we move, we can move quite quickly and it only takes a handful of, of projects to show the, to lead the way and create a point of difference that then creates competition on the market. I think it's one of my favourite things about working in property but on the sustainability side of property is seeing them compete on the best sustainable or from a Living Future Institute perspective the most resilient and restorative buildings that we're now seeing come online. So for, for us, for Jungle Fi, you know, we see the Living um, Future Institute of Australia and the Living Building Challenge and the Biophilic Design Competition as leading the way, as providing that 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 inspiration, but an achievable inspiration, I think, is the key here, Matt. You know, these are for built structures, not for design. So they've been built, they're being used, they're they're paving the way for the future. And I think that's really incredibly important to recognise because some of the early adopters, um, you know, they actually do pave the way for others and there's lessons learned in every single project and we just get better and better and better at it. So with our awards like this, um, I don't think people need to see what's possible and then learn the lessons and then be able to do it better next time. And that's that's competition on, I would say, here in Australia. Um, and I'm with you. Yeah, go check out the Living Future Institute if you haven't. They're a, a very great online learning resource and I, I would definitely support that. We'll, we'll link to that in the in the show notes and the the awards. That's twenty three. When are they? When are the awards being announced in next year? So the awards are available now. You can apply online now um, if you're in Australia. Um, they, I think, the award officially they close around the end of February. So really great time to just register, think about, and they must be built form, and it's for interiors built environment and then buildings and communities. So it's from, you know, small scale inside round to sort of larger scale. And I, and I don't think there's any time date on it either. So they, it could be a project that has been around for a while that probably hasn't had its biophilic design recognition because let's, it probably wasn't considered a label, you know, uh, hmm. five years ago. Very cool. Listen, thank you so much for your time. It's been really great Pleasure, talking man. to you. We'll add your website and all your social media onto the uh, onto the show notes as well. Susie, thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Absolute pleasure.